a minute, we'll be looking in Genesis 43. If you're watching online, welcome, and you can click the version button and uh, have access to the outline as well as the verses. And surely you, as you came in today, were given an outline. I hope you were. If you would like to use it, if you'd like to fill in some blanks, we'll give you that opportunity in a second. We continue our study about Joseph, the Old Testament character, who shows us how God gets us through tough things. Would you state with me this declaration of faith that's been a part of this series, each message? Fill your lungs with air and your hearts with hope. Let's state it together. By God's power, I'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. I won't be foolish or naive, but nor will I despair. With God's help, I know I will get through this. And so, Father, we find ourselves thinking about the stronghold of anger, the resentment that we feel toward people who have mistreated and betrayed us. This is a deep pain, deeper than we can go with common sense and logic, but not too deep for you, O great physician. First, we ask that you would give us a desire to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven. And then we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to forgive them. Release us from this intoxicating hatred. And grant us, Father, free reign in the world of grace. Through Jesus we pray. And all who agreed with the prayer said... In 1882, a New York City businessman by the name of Joseph Richardson owned a narrow strip of land on Lexington Avenue. And when I say narrow, I mean narrow. It was five feet wide, 104 feet deep. How he came across this piece of property, who knows. But another businessman, a man by the name of Hyman Sarner, owned a property, piece of property next to that skinny piece of property, and it was a normal-sized lot, and he wanted to build an apartment building there, a four-story apartment building. He wanted to be able to access Lexington Avenue, and so he wanted to purchase that skinny piece of property from Mr. Richardson. Mr. Sarner made an offer, $1,000 for that narrow piece of property on Lexington Avenue. Mr. Richardson was offended by the offer. He demanded at least 5000 not a penny less. When Mr. Sarner refused, Mr. Richardson called Mr. Sarner a tightwad and slammed the door. Sarner assumed that the land would remain vacant, and he instructed his architect to go ahead and, and design a four-story apartment building with windows that overlooked Lexington Avenue. When Richardson heard about the design, he resolved to block the view. No one was going to enjoy a free view over his lot, no siree. So 70-year-old Richardson built on that narrow strip of property a house. Five feet wide and 100 feet long and four stories high. (laughs) And upon completion... 70-year-old Richardson and his wife moved in. And they lived there for 14 years. Only one person at a time could ascend the stairs or pass through the hallways. 
The largest table was 18 inches wide. The stoves were the very smallest that were made. A newspaper reporter heard about the house, and he came to write a story about the house. He was a man of some girth. <laughs> and he got stuck in the stairwell. And only succeeded in exiting after a friend pushed on him for 10 minutes. Neighbors dubbed the residence the Spite House. The Spite House. Richardson spent the last 14 years of his life in this narrow residence which seemed to fit his narrow state of mind. The Spite House. It was torn down in 1915 which is odd because I distinctly remember spending a few nights there last year. <laughs> and I think a couple of weeks there the year before. And if memory serves me correctly, I think I've seen some of you there. You know, every person on the planet has enough heartache and hurt to justify the construction of a spite house. No page in the Bible questions the existence of your mistreatments. But many passages challenge you and me to release, release our resentments. One of my favorites is in James 1 and verse 20. Anger will not help you live the right kind of life that God wants. Or this one from the book of Psalms. Bridle your anger. Trash your wrath. Cool your pipes. It only makes things worse. Revenge builds a lonely house. Enough room really for just one person. And the life of that one person is reduced to one goal. And that is to make someone miserable. And he succeeds himself. No wonder God is so intent that we Keep a sharp eye out for the weeds of bitter discontent. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. God's healing for you and for me always includes a move out from the house of spite into a place of grace. His treatment for our future always includes a treatment of our past. Especially the ancient, suppressed, buried wounds of our lives. And He can heal them. Though we often wonder if He can. My past, we say, my history of sexual abuse, this raw anger I feel at the father who left my mother, this seething disgust I feel every time I think of the man who traded me in on a new model. Can he heal my ancient hurts? I am confident that Joseph asked these questions. When we study his life, though he lived 3,600 years ago, we see that he wrestled with the very same issues that you and I wrestle with today. Temptation, rejection, fear, and here, resentment. How do you move on? How do you outlive a memory like his? His ten brothers heave-hoed him. They, they threw him over the edge of a pit. 
And their discussion was, well, do we let him die or do we sell him into slavery? These are his brothers. All ten of them unanimously decided they voted him out of the family. How do you move on? How do you outlive that kind of memory? They walked away and they never came back. And so Joseph returned the favor. As we pointed out last week, when Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, he had, at this point, had nine years in which he had plenty of time and absolute access to resources. He could have gone back to Canaan. He could have at least sent message to Canaan. But he chose to do what most of us do, and that is just ignore it. Just live with it. Just stay busy. We do that, we get busy, or we get high, or we get drunk, or we get out of town. We try to bury the hurt. But have you noticed that we are not very good grave diggers? We dig shallow graves because these hurts come back. They keep getting surfaced. We run into her at the wedding. We see him at the store. We come across an old email. We keep running into these brothers. They show up from Canaan right here in the middle of Egypt. Why? I believe it's because God wants, once and for all, to deal with these hurts. And he knows as long as they're suppressed, they can come back to life at any minute. So he brings them to the surface and places us in positions where he can bring healing to them. That's what he did with Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph saw his brothers in the bread line at Canaan, two years into the famine... He recognized them instantly, but they did not recognize him. And so he mistreated them without disclosing who he was. He threw them in jail. He spoke roughly to them. As far as they knew, they'd never get out of jail. Can I just say, it's good to see Joseph get angry. He's one of those Bible characters that's almost too good. He's a Teflon Bible character. Nothing sticks to him. You know, he was the model prisoner, though unfairly imprisoned. He was a great slave. He worked his way to the top of the food chain in Potiphar's house. He never complained. He never seems angry. But here we discover he did get angry. We expect to see him when he sees his brothers. Forgive them and say, Lord, forgive them. They knew not what they did. But he doesn't. He gets angry and he disguises himself and he throws them in jail. Why? I think it's because forgiving jerks is the toughest trick in the bag. It is. We'll do anything for God except forgive that person. We'll feed the poor. We'll manage the famine. We'll consult Pharaoh. We'll We'll memorize the book of Leviticus twice. <laughs> but don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. As Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Really? Really? When my friend was six years of age, her mom ran off with a salesman, leaving the daughter to be raised by a good-hearted dad who knew nothing of dolls or dresses or dates. The two of them stumbled through life together and really made the best of it. Now she's an adult, 
Recently, her mom re-entered the picture, kind of like Canaan brothers, Canaanite brothers showing up in Egypt. She asked to meet her daughter at a cafe. The two haven't seen each other in a couple of decades. And she asked her daughter to forgive her for abandoning her. And the response of the daughter in her heart, down deep in her heart, was, it's just not that easy. It's just not that easy. Doesn't the mom need to experience a little bit of what she gave? A few years without maternal guidance, maybe some fear-filled nights, some adolescent days in which she, you don't know how to put your lipstick on right or how to brush your hair. A little bit of justice. One of the deepest questions that we wrestle with is how do we reconcile God's call to forgive with the deep pain that we have experienced? How do we reconcile the feeling of being a victim with God's call to issue mercy? Doesn't some vengeance need to be given? Some justice need to be distributed? Yes, it does. In fact, you need to know that God is more concerned about justice than you are. Have you seen this verse? Under the headline, Trust God's Justice, the scripture says, Never pay back evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Look, leave that to whom? To God. For he has said, what? He may repay. He once repaid. He is prone to repay. Now what? He will repay those who deserve it. Mark it down, folks. Your enemy won't get away with it. They just won't. Down deep, those people who have been severely victimized have this fear. That is, that the evildoer is just going to slip into the night. Unknown and unpunished. Escape to the Fiji Islands. And sip Mai Tais on the beach. No consequences. But this passage and many others tell us that God is working out a plan of justice right now. And that's not your job and it's not mine. And he gives us examples. And one of the examples is found in the story of the life of Joseph. So let's go back. Remember Joseph put his brothers in prison for three days. As far as they knew, they'd never get out. But they had told Joseph that they had a younger brother back in Canaan by the name of Benjamin. And so Joseph calls him out of prison and he says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to keep Simeon here as surety and I'm going to send the rest of you back and I want you to come back with that baby brother. I want to meet him. Again, they don't know who Joseph is. They don't know that the prince of Egypt is their brother. So the brothers all go back to Canaan. And there we see Jacob for the first time. It's been 20 years since we last saw Jacob. By now, he's just a weak shadow of a man. They explain the situation to Jacob. And look what Jacob says back to them. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Jacob is not a model father. 
He refuses to discipline his kids. He plays favorites. He has multiple wives, and he has a pity party when he hears that the youngest son is needed back in Egypt. He plays the role of a prima donna. We begin to see why his family is also messed up. But we also begin to see here the surfacing of a hero, Judah. Judah, who had once been willing to kill Joseph, says this to Jacob. Send Benjamin with me, and we will arise and go, that we may not live, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. You see, Judah is suddenly willing to relinquish his own name, even to risk his own life. This is the same Judah who was willing to sell Joseph into slavery. He's the same Judah who said, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. What has happened to Judah? Well, a lot has happened to Judah. If you were to read Genesis 38, you would read this interesting parenthetical story about Judah and what has happened to him during the time that Joseph has been in Egypt. You see, during the time that Joseph was in Egypt, his big brother Judah got married, had three sons. The eldest son was to marry a girl by the name of Tamar, but the eldest son died. As was the protocol of the day, I'm glad it's not today, but as was the protocol of that day, the wife-to-be was given then to the second son, but he died. Judah determines that Tamar is jinxed. And so instead of giving her to the third son as he was supposed to do, he just puts the whole matter on hold. He doesn't do anything. Leaving Tamar with no option. She's a young widow in a land in which widows had a tough time. Well, as the story goes on, Judah's wife died, leaving him a widower. Tamar, his daughter-in-law, hears that Judah is coming to town. Apparently, Judah has not been responding to her emails because she takes a, a creative, dramatic approach of getting his attention. She dresses up like a prostitute and she offers herself to Judah. He does not recognize his daughter-in-law. Oh, how lust can blind a man. But he takes her up on the offer, and in exchange for sex, he gives to her his necklace and his walking stick. Three months pass. Tamar shows up again. Guess what? She's pregnant. Judah, who, remember, did not know that was his daughter-in-law. Judah goes high and mighty on his daughter-in-law. And he says, you need to be burned. Well, guess who ends up getting burned? She produces what? The necklace and the walking stick that she has cleverly kept all this time 
and Judah drinks from a big, hot, steaming cup of justice. Everything he did 20 years ago, he receives. Remember how he deceived Jacob, his father? He was part of the plot to cover up the disappearance of Joseph. He deceived Jacob. Now Judah is deceived by Tamar. How he trapped Joseph. Remember how he trapped him in the pit? Now Judah is trapped by Tamar. How he humiliated Joseph, how they called him names, how they turned their backs on him. Now Judah is humiliated. Everything that happened that he caused now happens to him. Vengeance was God's and God did repay. And for the first time, one of the brothers of Joseph says something that's somewhat civil. He finally confesses. He says, she has been more righteous than I. Judah comes to his senses, so to speak. Now, I've shared with some of you before that I've often wondered why this story of Judah is in the Bible. Especially in the order that it is, because we start off with the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. He gets sold into Egyptian captivity. And then we come into the story of Judah and Tamar. What an odd story. And then pick up with uh, Joseph again in, in chapter 39 in Egypt. But it occurs to me now that we see the reason the narrator put this story in, in the Joseph story. And that is to teach us that while Joseph was 30 days away by foot in Egypt, God was active in the life of Jacob's family. In order for there to be reconciliation between Joseph and Jacob's sons, at least one of the brothers has to come to his senses, right? In order for there to be any hope of reconciliation, one of them has to come to his senses. So for his reasons, God selected Judah. Judah, yes, the tribe of Judah from which Jesus himself will come. God singles him out and says, well, a little wake-up call for you would be good. And it worked. He gave Judah a taste of his own medicine. And Judah is the one who defends the family and the cause to Jacob. And then you'll see in the next couple of weeks how Judah is the one who issues an impassioned plea to Joseph in the throne room that melts Joseph's heart. And all this time Joseph has been away in Egypt, and Joseph never had to lift a fist. Joseph never had to shake a finger. Vengeance is mine, God says. I am the one responsible to settle scores. I am the one to wake people up. Forgiveness is not an acquiescence of justice. It's just a surrender of justice into the hand of God. Your job is not to fix your enemy. Your job is to forgive your enemy. To make no list of wrongs. To stop stirring the pot. To pray for your enemy and not plot against your enemy. 
You still value justice. We still require that evildoers be taken to court, that robbers serve prison sentences, that child support be paid. We still demand that justice be done within the respectable mores of society. The difference is, personally, we just don't build a house of spite. We don't make getting even our life goal. We don't make getting even our life goal. But we trust God who has forgiven us to forgive others. Forgiveness quits focusing on the pit of abandonment and lifts eyes and focuses instead on the cross of Calvary. And we remember that all the sins of humanity are intermingled and they are not differentiated into groups. But your sins and the sins of the evildoer are mixed together and mine as well. And all placed on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ dies for that person as well as for you. And the bottom line is if God thinks they're worth dying for, if he thinks they're worth forgiving, they are. Forgiveness acknowledges the sovereignty of God to distribute justice fairly. And forgiveness acknowledges that we who have received grace give grace. And then we're set free from the house of spite. You see, forgiveness is the gift we give ourselves. Forgiveness is the gift we give ourselves. Not because they deserve it, but because we need it. That's not easy. It's not quick. It's not painless. Sure wasn't for Joseph, was it? I don't know if you kept reading in the story, but the brothers come back from Canaan. Youngest brother, baby brother Benjamin in tow. Joseph receives them. He throws a party for them. This time instead of putting them in jail, he has a party for them. And somehow, he seats them according to birth order. And they're scratching their heads saying, how does he know this? And, and whenever they get one helping, little baby brother gets five helpings. So, so how does he, what, what's going on? They can't quite figure all this out. But Joseph is so kind to them this time. He doesn't put them in prison, but he treats them like royalty. And then he gives them a lot of sacks of grain, tells them to go back, and he hides a silver cup, a chalice, in the sack of grain in Benjamin's sack, sends the guards to get him. He plays a trick on them, and he brings them back. <sighs> Joseph, what are you doing? First you put him in jail. Then you cry for them. Then you feed them. Then you cry again. Then you love them. Then you send them off. And then you play a trick on them. And now they're coming back. Forgiveness is like this, folks. Forgiveness is like this. Forgiveness has fits and starts. It's just not a light bulb thing. It's not a switch. It, it's not something you'd say, okay, today I forgive and then you feel forgiven. Or you're able to forgive. It's just, there's no magic pill. You take a step and then you back away. You turn to the right and then you turn to the left. 
But here's what you need to know, I think. If you are trying to forgive, you are forgiving. If you're trying, you're forgiving. It's when we quit trying, that's when we move into that skinny house of spite. So just keep trying. And little by little, you're going to find yourself forgiving more and hating less until one day you look up and you'll say, Whoa, I'm in a brand new house. Heavenly Father, as we think about our enemies, it stirs up deep and anxious and angry thoughts. But Lord, we believe that you can bring healing. And so we ask for it even right now. Speak to your church, please. In Jesus' name, amen.